0: once again we welcome you to moving forward with young voices happy to welcome a very familiar voice and name back to the program that would be alexander salter Um, alex is a professor of east economics and i'm probably getting your title wrong but in fact alex can i just say would you mind uh, for the sake of those who haven't met you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do
1: I'm happy to do that, Brian. I am the Georgie G. Snyder Associate Professor of Economics in the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University. I'm also a research fellow at TTU's Free Market Institute. Those are my two main affiliations, and I also write many op-eds. I appear on media appearances, and I'm happy to contribute to public discourse because I think that right now we can seriously use an economically informed perspective on public affairs.
0: I would agree. And I don't mean to, uh, you know, stroke your ego here, but I'm going to tell you when, when it comes to if I want a really solid take on what's happening uh, monetarily in, in this nation, you're the guy I turn to because you'll tell it to me straight. <laughs> and I, even if it's painful truth, I, I can get it. So let's talk a little bit about your article in National Review about, uh, mm-hmm. actually, money looks pretty tight. Now, I haven't, I have not read the article that uh, uh, Ramesh poneru had written about, uh, maybe it's time to tighten up the money supply, but it sounds like uh, he's not seeing something that you are seeing.
1: Yes, that's right. So Ramesh had a brief post at National Review Capital Matters the other day arguing that total dollar spending in the economy, what economists call nominal GDP or sometimes aggregate demand, was still growing too quickly. And that post was before the most recent release of CPI, Consumer Price Index, inflation data. And so Ramesh was arguing that based on total demand growth in the economy, it looks like the central bank of the United States, the Fed, has not done enough to tighten monetary policy. So I and my co-author on this piece in National Review, Brian Kutzinger, my colleague from Angelo State University, replied to that saying, actually, if you look at the two main indicators of monetary policy, interest rates and the money supply, it does look like the Federal Reserve is pursuing an appropriately tight monetary policy. And we are fortuitous to have that article run just about a day or so after the newest CPI figures released, showing that there is virtually no headline inflation during the month of October. So, we are still experiencing significant disinflation. We're nowhere near deflationary territory, but it does seem that economy-wide pricing pressures are easing.
0: So, when we talk about tightening the money supply, or the money supply being tight, As a layman, I'm not sure I understand exactly what that means. I think I do, but I'm going to ask my friend, uh, Associate Professor Salter, would you tell me what do we mean
1: when we say tighten? Sure, happy to talk about that. So the main way that most people will talk about this is in terms of interest rates. Uh, I have my issues with that view and that metric, but simply for the sake of argument, okay, let's look at interest rates. Right now, the target for the Federal Reserve's key policy interest rate, the Fed funds rate, which is the rate at which banks will lend each other money on an overnight basis, is about 5.5%. If you adjust that for inflation, it looks like inflation-adjusted interest rates on a short-term basis are roughly 1.5%. Is that tight money or is that loose money? We would need to compare that interest rate to the hypothetical rate consistent with full employment of scarce capital and sustainable economic growth. Now that hypothetical rate is not directly observable, but economists have come up with a bunch of fancy tools to estimate it as best as we can. And it looks like based on the economic fundamentals, the so-called natural rate of interest is somewhere between 0.5 and 1.0%. So since inflation adjusted market rates are above the natural rate, That suggests that the price of capital is above the level dictated by economic fundamentals. That suggests tight money. Another measure that I would really recommend looking at is, of course, the money supply. It's become unfashionable in recent years to judge monetary policy based on the quantity of money in the economy. But I insist, I insist that this is still a useful indicator. And if you look at the money supply it's down compared to where it was a year ago somewhere between one and a half and three and a half percent depending on which metric you're using that's really unprecedented it's not all that uncommon for the money supply to grow more slowly but for it to actually shrink that's very rare we haven't seen something like that in decades so again when you look at interest rates when you look at the money supply both of them are suggesting the federal reserve has hit the brakes and that they shouldn't hit the brakes even harder or again until the economy has time to catch up with the current monetary tightening,
0: so I want to make sure I'm translating this correctly in my layman's mind. Um, it's when when the when the money supply is tightened and and, and interest rates uh, go up, it becomes harder to borrow money. If 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 I'm not mistaken, is it am, am I even in the in the ballpark here, Alex?
1: Yeah, all else being equal, you would expect higher interest rates to be translated into the prices of other capital assets and borrowing contracts across the economy, which means that borrowing money, taking out credit, that becomes more difficult. Uh, There are exceptions, but that's generally the way that most in the financial and economic commentariat would approach that. The money supply is even more easy to interpret. If the money supply is growing, there's more liquidity in the economy. If the money supply is shrinking, there's less liquidity in the Mm -hmm. economy. Now, that doesn't tell the whole story because, as with all things in economics, you can't just look at supply, you also have to look at demand. And it could be the case that if money demand is growing, an increasing money supply does not necessarily mean tight money. But I think in this case, it does. Since I think what is happening is that the money supply is shrinking because of what we call financial disintermediation, which is just a fancy economic phrase for banks calling in loans and not making new ones, or at least not making them as quickly, because of underlying interest rate considerations. Again, when you look at things that way, I think the most reasonable position to take right now is that monetary policy is appropriately tight Perhaps even a little bit too tight. I would really hesitate against going any tighter before we see a couple more inflation figures and GDP figures.
0: Interesting. Well, thank you for giving me a seventy-five cent word I can now add to my lexicon. <laughs> I'll, I'll be busting that one out at the uh, Christmas table to impress my relatives. Uh, financial yeah, significant time, financial
2: discrabble Shout out.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I have to trademark uh, Alexander Salter. No, I. I appreciate you taking the time, though, to to put uh, some of the nuance into this. Because for for those of us who are not economists or who who are not monetary policy specialists, it it can just seem like, oh, it's all Greek. I I don't understand. Now, is it easier to borrow money versus harder to borrow money? That I understand. Is it harder to pay back? Or is it going to take longer because the interest rates are higher? Or is it going to cost me more to borrow money? I understand that perfectly. Um, I'm just, I'm curious. It, It seems... It feels like the economy is is in worse shape than it may actually be.
1: Is that fair to say? I'm having a hard time predicting where the economy is going to be over the next couple of quarters. Again, economists, we have this tendency of predicting recessions, and then recessions never materialize, right? There's this joke about the economists successfully predicting nine (laughs) out of the last two recessions. So all (laughs) the leading economic indicators suggest that we should be in not great shape, and yet GDP, total output, output continues to grow, albeit slowly. Inflation is coming down, albeit slowly. Unemployment does not seem to be jumping up. Now, you might have some concerns about the fact that labor force participation is down and doesn't seem to be recovering, right? You're always concerned, especially when young people are not actually in the labor force. But in terms of a business cycle, right, in terms of something destabilizing the economy and pushing us into recession... I just don't see it coming on the horizon. Maybe if the Federal Reserve gets spooked and goes too tight too fast, that could happen. Uh, We're not exactly in a solid place right now. You could say that we're on the nuts edge, but who knows? Maybe we can stay balanced for quite some time.
0: I love that you point out we should never make peace with the scourge of inflation, but at the same time, um, it is possible to go too far in the other direction in terms of over-tightening, uh, and you say that would throw a wrench in the economy's gears, and, and again, I'm just going to ask you, as a, as a layman, help me understand, when, when, they, when they over-tighten, how does that hamstring the economy?
1: When the central bank over-tightens, they're basically making the demand side of the economy, the total spending side of the economy, less strong than people are expecting. If you're a business owner, you probably have some long-term contracts that you've agreed to in terms of purchasing inputs. You probably have some labor contracts that you have with your workers. All of those contracts were written with certain expectations in mind. One of those expectations was general demand-side conditions in the economy, among them money's purchasing power. So if the Fed tightens and it turns out that there's less liquidity, less spending throughout the system than people anticipated, then they're not going to be able to earn the nominal income, meaning current dollar value income, necessary to meet those contractual obligations. But that's not due to any unsustainability in their production process. That's because the central bank goofed and made liquidity conditions too tight. So that's the thing that we ultimately want to avoid. Monetary policy can really not help an economy grow super strong. The best it can do is not hurt. When monetary policy is appropriately tight, the market pricing process, supply and demand can do its work at allocating scarce resources in a way that promotes maximum sustainable economic performance. And that's what we're shooting for.
0: All right. My time spent with you is always some of the most enlightening time that I get to spend with anybody, especially on topics like monetary policy. We're talking with Alexander Salter. He is a Young Voices contributor. What's your uh, best social media address?
1: But you can always reach me at my website, www.awsalter.com. All of my public writings are posted there. My email address is there. I always love to hear from readers and listeners. So please drop me a line. I would love to talk about this stuff with you.
0: Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. We are happy to welcome Natalie Voigt back to the program. Natalie, this isn't your first time on the show, but for the sake of people who are meeting you for the first time as a Young Voices contributor, take a moment and tell us just a little bit about yourself.
3: Yeah, so I'm a graduate of the University of Florida, and I'm now based in Switzerland. I studied political science and history, um, and I am now, I'm actually doing an internship now with the Foundation for Defense of Democracies, um, so, that's something new that's happening in my life. And I finally created my Twitter account, so.
0: Oh, you did? Hey!
3: <laughs> yeah, so people can actually follow me there. <laughs> um,
0: do you have yeah. your blue check mark yet?
3: Yes, okay. yes. <laughs> very
0: good, very good. You have a really interesting article in RealClearMarkets.com about uh, the Biden administration standing down to World Trade Organization protectionism. Now, I'm going to admit, I probably would be more likely to be watching football than than keeping an eye on uh, these uh, World Trade Organization talks that were taking place. But give me the background. Help me understand the, the story of what were these talks that were taking place, and was it surprising that the U.S. took the stance that it did?
3: Yeah, so the talks that were taking place, um, essentially since the 1990s, the U.S. has been the de facto leader in the digital space, um, and they've promoted... A free and open internet and essentially pro innovation policies and policies that protect as well American businesses and workers. And then it was a surprise because, regardless of the administration, regardless of political party, the US has always been pro innovation, right? Since essentially the start of the internet. Um, so, this was kind of an about phase from the USTR. And um, people from both sides of the aisle were very angry.
0: What was at stake with these key digital trade demands that, that these talks were centered around? Um, is it something that you can can give us like a thumbnail sketch of, you know, what, what were they trying to resolve?
3: Um, one of the talks was about like some of the areas of concern or data localization mandates, making sure that they weren't as widespread, that countries like China couldn't implement these mandates, because these again are just barriers to business for U.S. commerce. Another one is essentially allowing the unfettered access to data across borders, and that was at stake. So. I mean, it can still go on like with the leadership of the other countries, but the U.S. leaving is a huge like symbolic action that we again are kind of isolating ourselves from this international world order that we've actually helped create.
0: Interesting. Is there any reasonable explanation for why the U.S. would take that approach? Is it just shaking things up or is there a strategy behind that?
3: Right. So a lot of people believe there's a strategy. I do too after researching um, this like a lot of Super progressive senators, for example, Senator Elizabeth Warren, she released a report. Um, it's actually titled Big Tech's Bitcoin Regain Digital Trade Rules to Block Antitrust Regulation. And so she's kind of always had this idea that somehow big tech... I mean, she cites some evidence, and this could be true, that there's a revolving door between, for example, companies like Meta, Apple, Microsoft, and USTR, and um, the Commerce Department officials, and that could be true, and maybe it is. I mean, she cites in her report these allegations, Um, but regardless of this, even if there is a revolving door, the laws still apply, and these... Like her reasoning was basically that they are trying to get the big tech is trying to get special access into crafting these these trade deals. And therefore, she was worried that they will skew them to their favor in a way that will prevent the uh, the U.S. government from regulating them. Right. Um, So that was basically the main idea. Um, And then she cites in her report. But as a lot of leaders, especially in the American Enterprise Institute, have said there's a lot of countries like to pull up the specific countries but there's countries like australia canada yeah japan new zealand singapore they've pursued these new digital rules and been open to this uh wto based digital trade uh world so to speak without sacrificing like regulatory action if they need to so it's just simply untrue that those two things will interfere
0: Interesting. Now, you note in your article that even on the U.S. side, uh, for instance, uh, the U.S. Chamber of Commerce was not happy with this decision by the Biden administration. Uh, What was their take?
3: Oh, they were really not happy. They actually just last week, they issued like another scathing report. Um, I have it up, but yeah, here they issued another report on November 20th called us with title "How USTR's Digital Trade Reversal Will Hurt Small Businesses," so they had immediately after the um, the about face on October 25th. I believe it was yeah October 25th. They immediately condemned the action and then they released like a series of reports stating how it will hurt small business and why it's not good for everybody in the American economy writ large. And then just last week they released another report. So yeah, they're definitely angry, I would say. And they cite a lot of great evidence as to how these new uh, digital <clears throat> Sorry, the, how this new like step back tech clash, so to speak, will hurt American workers.
0: Interesting. Does this open up opportunities for China to step in and fill that leadership role formerly held by the U.S.?
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the U.S. was always seen as the 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 leader in this uh, realm. So I would say more than China, the EU style of digital the EU style digital regulatory approach will become the norm, but they are known for uh, like their flawed strategy of over-regulation. But of course, so I think this will become the norm in the West, but it does like leave a lot more room for these countries to subversively influence like policy now that the US is out of the picture.
0: Wow. Well, so Mm -hmm. uh, if you would be so kind as to read your tea leaves, (laughs) where does this lead? Does is this is this a big shakeup in terms of digital trade, or is this just you know a a speed bump and something that has to be you know worked out in the near term?
3: I think I'm kind of hopeful that with all this backlash from both members of the aisle, that it will actually um, be worked out and um, there will be room to to fix this. Okay, but it is you know. mm
2: -hmm.
0: So. I'll admit, I probably focus way more on legislation than I do on trade agreements. But um, with the advent of digital trade, um, I'm just curious, I'd like to get your take on how much has, you know, has overall commerce worldwide changed because of uh, entering the digital age? Um, it would seem that we've, we've kind of crossed a, a pretty interesting canyon there into, into a new territory.
3: Right. Well, the most well-known companies on Earth are all were, so to say, products of this philosophy of open... Openness led by the US, right? So if you think of Google, Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Meta, I mean, these are some of the world's most successful digital firms, and they came out of the US nowhere else. And so following that a lot of countries like they saw America's success, and they wanted to emulate that. And the only way it was through by implementing uh, America's pro innovation, uh, like light touch, so to speak, digital policy. So. Uh, that's my take. That it's it's very important because I mean, as you can see, all these companies have greatly. I mean, there's a lot of controversy surrounding them, but no one can deny that these are some of the world's greatest companies.
0: Does this set the stage for for more difficult uh, business conditions for for not only American companies but other companies with the stance that the U.S. is taking? Does it does right. it hamper them? Um,
3: Yeah, so for example, data localization creates trade barriers through by making it more difficult for companies to operate across borders, um, to do trade with other countries um, because they cannot access data that's stored in other countries. Um, So it definitely will hurt, the Commerce Department cited a report saying it will hurt small and medium-sized businesses the worst.
0: All right. We are up against the clock, unfortunately, again, talking with Natalie Voigt with Young Voices. Natalie, uh, with your newly acquired uh, X or Twitter handle, where can people find you?
3: Right. So my Twitter handle is simply at N-A-T-H-I, Nati, Voigt, V-O-I-T. So at N-A-T-H-I-V-O-I-T. And I'm active now, so people can find me there.
0: We are back. This is segment three of Moving Forward with Young Voices. Hey, we're happy to welcome uh, a new voice to uh, to the program, Colin Lamborn. This is, Colin, this is your first time joining us, but uh, happy to have you here as a Young Voices contributor. For the sake of everybody who's getting to meet you for the very first time, tell us about who you are and what you do.
4: Hey, everyone. My name is Colin Lamborn, as Brian so eloquently said. I'm a communications apprentice with Young Voices right now. I've been there for three months as I'm finishing up my undergraduate degree at USU studying English. And uh, it's been amazing. I've gotten to see the back-end work for lots of these awesome contributors that have gone on this show. Uh, I've done editorial, personal relations, and uh got an gotten experience in the programs department. So it's been a wonderful experience. I've loved every minute here.
0: Looking at a very interesting op-ed you wrote for, or a commentary you wrote for the Salt Lake Tribune. Uh, USU, that's Utah State University's student code, restricts students' right to free speech. Uh, now, I would have thought BYU would have been the first one to get to, to get that rap, but talk to me about what's going on with USU and their student code, and how is it infringing on the rights of students?
4: Yes, so... The student code has very specific language that when you first look at it or you first hear it, it sounds, it sounds very common sense, sounds good. Uh, the three parts that I've kind of really stuck out to me was one, you have to obey the syllabi and course instruction put out by your instructors in class. Uh, the second is you have to treat your professors with dignity and respect. And the third is if you egregiously abuse or or break this code, you can be subject to judicial action from Utah State. So that that sounds common sense. It's like, okay, just just be kind, obey your professors, and you're good. However, in my recent experience this semester, where a professor mandated they, them pronouns for everyone, well-intentioned to be kind and generous, but if you disobey that class rule and it would be a repeated egregious offense saying hey this is infringing on my freedom of speech i don't i don't want to obey this rule then it, it's it's kind of where usu could define that as a repeated egregious offense and then take judicial action against you so that's what i've seen this semester how that could how free speech has been severely limited oh i could see that being a, a problem um so
0: what kind of recourse do you have as a student in terms of, of challenging how that student
4: uh, code is being applied well the the biggest recourse i saw was an opportunity to speak out against it and to get some publicity on it uh young voices recently partnered with the foundation for individual Wife and expression to start a, a campaign called the the Speak campaign, which is what my op-ed is is for, uh, this foundation had a huge list of two, hundreds of universities across the nation and rated their speech codes based on their, their their student codes and other rules and regulations that they had and rated it from green, yellow to red, red being this is severely restricting freedom of speech, green being this is totally free speech campus, it's great. Uh, Utah State is red because of this very policy that I talked about for the student code. Um, And so that I saw this opportunity and I thought this would be the best way of recourse for for me to try and get something published out there. And luckily it it turned out great. It got published to the Salt Lake Tribune, which I'm very grateful for. So talk to me about to to
0: fix some of those areas where, for instance, it may be well intended, but it's still an infringement on free speech. What would you propose in terms of revisions to that student code?
4: Yeah, so I, I propose that there's very specific language. And I think this is probably the first step of many that needs to to take place in not only in Utah State, but also in, in universities across the nation uh, that I've read some other free-to-speak op-eds about from other computer readers from Young Voices. Uh, That would be the first step is to just make sure to add an amendment or change some of the language that would specifically protect students rights to freedom of speech and expression and life and happiness in the classroom, Uh, because Utah State does have a part of their student code. You can protest outside of the classroom, but in the classroom, it's always obey your professors obey the syllabi or else we can take judicial action against you if we deem it necessary.
0: Interesting. Is it, can can you tell me who is behind um, the way that the student code is set up as it currently is? Because it sounds like it doesn't sound like it's it's been hijacked necessarily. It's, it just sounds to me like it's being applied according to well, this is what the current trends are, or this is this is where uh, the current uh, tide of thought seems to be headed, um, as opposed to well, somebody imposed this code and now they're you know hamstringing everybody's right to free speech. <laughs>
4: Yeah, so I, I tried to look it up on the USU website, and uh, I, I know that it's it's some members of faculty, and I'm sure that the president of the university is involved in this student code. But when I tried to look it up and find uh, a different code, well, even for a code for the teachers, it said that that it wasn't found. Uh, so the the only thing I could find was that there's there's some faculty up there or some, maybe the faculty came together and said, hey, this is how the students should should behave on our campuses. And, and uh, but uh, that was one, one step that I wanted to take was to see what the teacher code was, or if there was one, but uh, it was blocked by a firewall or something like that when I tried to look it up. So my, my, my assumption is that it's just under revision or they haven't uh, published it yet. So that's as far as I got in that end of investigation into that sort of issue. So let's talk for a moment about
0: uh, why is it important that that even unpopular or or ugly speech still be protected? Because this seems to be, you know, I mean, it can be a very subjective thing. What's, What's beautiful to one person may not be beautiful to another. But if someone, as you point out in your article, if they're actively issuing you harm, it's still in your interest to defend their right to speak freely. Why is that?
4: I would say it's because uh, in order for us to be to label ourselves as free Americans, right, we would need to have that tolerance. And I mean that uh, very literally and not uh, not subjectively applied to what you like and what you don't like. You, you should tolerate all, all sorts of opinions. I uh, in that same class where they them pronouns was mandated. Students wrote about uh, <clears throat> my my religion. And how they had terrible experiences with it and they said some very awful things about my religion, which I practice and, uh, and I was I thought that's fine. And when I gave them feedback, it was kind of a creative writing class when I gave them feedback. Um, I, I I held their best interests in mind. And I feel that it was my duty as an American to to make sure that their thoughts can get into whatever thought market that that keep, that it can go to. Um, because if we restricted anybody's free speech that we didn't like or that we felt was harmful to us. Cause people have said some awful things about, about my religion. Um, and, and, that, and that's okay. It's, it's no big deal. Um, and in order for us to, to be free think, free thinkers and not be thought slaves to wherever, wherever one talking point goes, we need multiple perspectives from, from hateful and a little bit cruel and maybe crass to uplifting and, and uh, insightful I appreciate your response and I want
0: to tell you there's two things that really stand out in in the way that you're approaching this number one I'm seeing an application of the golden rule this is what it looks like you're 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 treating others the way you would want to be treated you want to speak freely okay speak freely I would like to be able to speak freely as well so what's good for the goose good for the gander I applaud that the second thing is free speech is the answer more speech? Is the answer to bad ideas or or ugly speech? And and it sounds like you know yeah people do hold some ugly ideas, but you know if you if you want to to see the best ideas rise to the top, you've got to be willing to to endure or at least be able to to consider other ideas so that you can can contrast and compare them. Precisely, couldn't have said it better. Well, I no I admire you for doing this. First of all for standing up cuz it's look, you're it's a bureaucracy and then they come in varying, you know, degrees of intensity, but still that's very intimidating to, to have to stand up and and assert your rights. Um what kind of response have you uh, have you heard back from the school is is it likely there will be revisions to the policy?
4: Well, I haven't seen anything yet, but I'm I'm hopeful that maybe maybe I can encourage some other students to stand out. Uh, I understand there's some other students in in my current classes that kind of have the same feelings we do where we feel a little restricted and maybe even under attack and attack is okay, Uh, but we, I'm thinking maybe if we spread the word a little bit more, uh, I haven't had any recourse from any professors yet. I doubt they, they noticed that, that uh, one of their students got published, maybe, but and uh, and that's all right. So I'm thinking I'll, I'll keep spreading the word and talk with whoever I can and we can see if we can make something happen over here
0: again. We are talking with Colin Lamborn. He's an undergraduate student at USU and he's a Young Voices contributor. And Colin, where can people follow you for your work?
4: Uh, You can follow me only on LinkedIn, really. That's the only platform I I enjoy, but it's just at Colin Lamborn and you'll see Young Voices, Comms Apprentice in there in my work history. I'm the only Colin Lamborn to do that. So you can find me there.
0: All right. I'm really looking forward to the next time we get to talk because I'm I'm certain there will be some follow-up to this and I'm hoping for a positive outcome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. welcome back to our fourth and final segment of moving forward with young voices happy to welcome back to the program joseph pochard he is a young voices contributor and joseph for those meeting you for the first time um, tell us a little bit about yourself
5: well, it was great to be back. Thank you uh, for having me again. Uh, so I'm a freelance journalist. I've been doing this for the last uh, four years or so, mostly covering Latin American geopolitics, how it relates to the United States and its interests. Uh, right now, I'm also a master's student in Canada, where I'm originally from.
0: All right. Well, you've you've got a great article here. This is in uh, the nationalinterest.org. Mille's win is a win for the U.S. You're talking about the newly elected president of Argentina. Holy cow! Is that guy making some waves, or what?
5: That's right. Well, uh, people have some different takes about him. He's quite the firebrand, as you said uh, before the show. He likes the attention, uh, has crazy hair, you know, was in a Rolling Stone cover band. But I think now he's most famous for his crazy politics. He wants to cut the central bank and a lot of different ministries, identifies as an anarcho-capitalist or libertarian. Uh, But I think some of his ideas would benefit the U.S., uh, specifically on fiscal policy, uh, adopting the U.S. dollar, which he wants to do, as well as cutting China's influence from the country.
0: Interesting so how is the us administration reacting to to his election i mean i don't want to i'm not casting aspersions here but it doesn't i don't feel like my own government is really all that uh, warm towards libertarians or anarcho capitalists
5: i would say that's correct especially this administration i would say trump and other uh, gopers would be more in favor of milei and i know Trump and other right-wing presidents and politicians throughout the world, like Bolsonaro as well in Brazil, congratulated Mille, whereas Biden was a lot more reserved. I, I think Biden and the US are a little more mixed on their response because they might appreciate Mille's attempt to stabilize the economy and and cutbacks on, on corruption and meddling uh, f- uh, the executive into legislative branches and and, and uh, judicial processes and monetary policy. But they fear that his sort of firebrand politics, uh, demagoguery of the establishment, and perhaps even authoritarian tendencies on social policies might not be a good sign for the country uh, as a democracy. Although personally, I'm optimistic, but I, I'm sort of withholding judgment on those issues till He actually starts becoming uh, starts forming policy next month.
0: I don't mean to um, you know cast a negative light on politicians, but uh, I think it's a good idea. They'll say whatever they're going to say, but uh, it's it's best to watch their actions. You know, their actions will tell you a lot more about who they are than, than just what they say. So, I'm I'm with you, I'm watching very, very seriously and very curiously about uh, will he carry out what, what he says he's going to do. Eliminating the central bank, for instance, appears he's serious. So, let's talk about uh, relations between the U.S. and Argentina. How have they mm-hmm. been up to this point? It seems like Argentina's had a pretty rough go for about the last 15 years or so.
5: I'd say so, and a lot of it uh, is based on fiscal policy by what they call the Peronist left, which has been in power for five decades or so. And Peronism is basically modeled after this dictator from the 80s who was supposedly a socialist, but loved Hitler. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, a quite interesting guy, very nationalistic, uh, was basically a authoritarian figure with a very charismatic personality. And people really cling to him mostly for his nationalistic politics. And I've ever since tried to emulate his policies, which have been very much, um, you know, I would say a responsible fiscal policy. And Millet is trying to break away from that. Uh, And Peronism likes to blame the United States in the IMF for its fiscal policies uh, and fiscal problems, although I would say that reckless spending, uh, mishandling inflation, um printing money to to finance public spending i would say those are most responsible for the economic crisis so the united states is willing to work with argentina as always because it's an important partner uh but i think having melee in the pink house as they call it will um create a more positive relationship at least diplomatically between the two countries
0: argentina was w- at one point wasn't it a, a pretty um Economically vibrant, you know, country. It's I, I, see, I Maybe I'm confusing them with Venezuela. I know Venezuela had a lot of resources and a lot of wealth that were, you know, um, squandered by, you know, other other leaders. But uh, what about Argentina? I, it seems like they were in a very strong position at least once upon a time. They
5: were during the early days of the Cold War. They were one of the favorite spots for uh, foreigners to go to: foreign bankers, foreign investors, tourists. Students, uh, partly because, yes, they they did have a solid economic policy, which some attribute to the dictatorship before uh, Perón came in power, and his early years as well. Uh, There was a right-wing dictatorship before Perón. That's why I mentioned that. Um, But after that, I would say, yeah, fiscal policy, mismanagement of the economy is really tanked Uh, the peso and any chance of Argentina to get back to that, at least uh, not until a lot of big things are fixed.
0: What about China? You mentioned them in the article, and I, I would assume that uh, China's probably keeping an eye on them as well. This, this probably portends uh, perhaps opportunities or, or maybe some obstacles for, for their goals in, in South America. Um, where, where are they coming from when they look at this?
5: Well, I think they're disappointed. Uh, they said that they were sort of caught off guard Uh, especially because Miele wants to exit a lot of Chinese-led institutions like the BRICS, which is a coalition of of big powers from the global south. Um, He also wants to exit the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, which is also led by China, and has said that he would not work with communists in reference to China. So he's sort of bringing back this uh, Cold War mentality of we'll work with the US and the West and liberal states, but not with communist states, Um, I think this is a loss for China because he's made clear even before he becomes president that he wants to work closely with the West. He's visited the U.S. multiple times already, visited Israel, proposed to move the embassy, um, has already a close relationship with the Biden administration and the IMF. Whereas on China, I don't think he's planning to visit or has any interest in doing so. So I would say this is a big loss for them.
0: Interesting. I and I never knew until I read your article. I didn't realize that China actually had a 50 year land lease for a, a satellite uh, monitoring station there in the in the Patagonian desert. Um, so it, it sounds like he, he's going to have to be on speaking terms with them, at least to some extent. But um, yeah, that, that was a that was a bit of information I, I had never really realized. I guess it makes sense. But um, they they clearly they do have, you know, some stake in in what's happening there.
5: It's interesting because China's military engagement in the region has really increased recently, including with the satellite station, which they say is used for civil purposes, but has dual use capability. Uh, They also signed a military and intelligence sharing agreement with Argentina. They're planning to build a military base in Southern Patagonia in Ushuaia, and are planning to build other military installations in Argentina and sign further deals. Uh, They have military education deals. They collaborate on various uh, matters of of military affairs with Argentina. Uh, But I would say Milay might might put a hold to that. Uh, The 50-year lease, who knows? He might try to renegotiate it, but the clause of the deal, the the terms of the deal specifically say that Argentina has no say in it and is not to interfere. Interesting. But we'll
0: see. We'll have to wait and see. Subject to uh, maybe subject to change. I guess we'll find out. One other note: right. we've only got about a minute left, but I wanted to ask you about on energy. Um, rather than big oil reserves, although they may have some, but you mentioned that mm. uh, as far as uh, America's energy interests, Argentina has a lot of lithium reserves, kind of the new uh, source of energy for you know batteries for EVs and so forth.
5: That's right. Uh, second most reserves in the world after Bolivia. And like Bolivia, it's struggled to exploit its resources, uh, partly due to bureaucracy and mismanagement. But Miley's promise to privatize that industry and other energy industries, and the stock market's already responded well to that. Um, and it seems like foreign investors are interested in investing in Argentine lithium, partly because it's so abundant. Uh, as everything else, we'll have to wait and see, especially because Miele doesn't control the Congress. Uh, the opposition actually has more seats at the moment. But uh, if everything goes his way, it might uh, it might it might work out to exploit the lithium in a more significant capacity in the future.
0: Okay, this is this is great information and another reason to keep one eye on what's happening, you know, south of uh, of North America as well, just to to know what what we have coming. Again, we're talking with Joseph Bouchard. He is a freelance journalist covering geopolitics and a Young Voices contributor. Tell everybody where they can find you on social media, where they can follow your work.
5: Thanks again for having me. So my Twitter is at GeoPaulWonk. You can also read my articles, usually in The Diplomat, The National Interest, and other uh, like-minded publications. I tend to publish articles every week on Latin American geopolitics.
0: All right. Hey, it was great to catch up with you once again, and I'm sure we'll have a lot to talk about next time as well.
5: Thank you. Great to be back. Hope to be back soon.